Hello, Journey to Midwifery podcast listeners. Welcome back to another great episode of the podcast. And this one is long, but worth every single minute of your time. I had a fantastic talk with Jessica, who is a certified professional midwife in Alaska and has, with her partner, started Pacific Birth Institute. All those links will be in the show notes, and I really encourage you to listen to every moment of this episode, even if you have to break it up. I hope you enjoy. Welcome to the Journey to Midwifery podcast. This is a podcast for and about midwives. This is the place where midwives come to share their stories. I am your host, Amber Wilson, a midwife myself. I felt called to this journey of sharing the stories of midwives around the globe, and I hope that you will find as much joy listening as I do interviewing. Remember the quote, life is about the journey, not the destination. Okay, Jessica, thank you for coming on to the Journey to Midwifery podcast. You are hailing from Alaska, so tell me and all the listeners um, who you are and a little bit about yourself. Well, Amber, I'm so excited to be here. My name is Jessica Johnston, and I am born and raised actually in Anchorage, Alaska, and I am a certified professional midwife that attends home birth here in the Anchorage area. Okay. Um, how's the weather right now? Horrible. Okay. It is. Um, well, I will say this in Alaska, if it's beautiful out and the sky is clear, like it is right now, as the sun is trying to rise barely at 10, 15 AM, it's cold. It is negative 11 degrees Fahrenheit outside right now. Um, so yeah, starting my car was exciting. I'm glad my doors opened, got my kid to school. I was not going to make him walk. So (laughs) he normally walks, but when it gets below 15 degrees, I I typically will take him. Yeah, Yeah. you guys probably have a tolerance for like outside play and things like that far different than other people. Yeah, you know, and uh, I love living in Alaska. It's just, this is that time of year where the sun's gonna be up in about a half hour and it will be down by four and it's cold. And so we just hunker down and I've got all my Christmas lights up. So it's, you know, wonderful in my home, (laughs) nice and warm and festive. Yeah, but yeah, no, Alaska is fantastic. I'm born and raised here um, and I love it. So I'm a certified professional midwife that does home birth, but I also am a director of development for the Pacific Birth Institute, which trains birth assistants and um, continuing education for midwives um, and lots of fun stuff. So yeah, I'm excited to talk to you about everything you and your listeners want to chat about today. Yes, I definitely want to hear more about your, the Pacific Birth Institute, but we will start with from the beginning, what inspired you or brought you to the field of midwifery? That is always such a great question. Um, I think a lot of people refer to midwifery as a calling. Um, I think a lot of healing paths are callings. I think OBs are called, quite honestly, just like midwives are. Um, So I I hesitate to use calling like this esoteric um, concept. Like I couldn't resist. It's actually more I mean, why am I not a dog walker is actually just as easy of a question. Why am I not as enthused by architecture? Uh, It's not who I am. 
So when we ask like, where did my path start? Well, I mean, probably from birth, right? But when I look at my actual path of midwifery, um, birth and midwifery showed up for me as a young woman at about 24, 25 years old. Um, I think it had a lot to do with my own age and um, my thoughts of my own future. And um, I had started you know, getting my own little biological itch going for kiddos and I started researching birth. And so I was a yoga teacher at the time, a Kundalini yoga teacher, and I also taught prenatal yoga. And so I was getting into this birth space, but from this kind of tangential angle of I was a competitive gymnast for years as a kid, and then I got really into yoga, and then I got into teaching yoga, and then I got into prenatal yoga, and so I signed up for this conscious conception course when I was like 26, um, and did this really cool workshop with this lady, and that's when I learned more about midwifery, and I was like, oh my god because I have a pre-medical degree. So I have an undergraduate in biology. I was going to pursue medicine. Um, I was really into that. And by the time I finished my undergraduate degree, there was a real big stop of, I don't think this is healing. I don't think traditional medicine is the care path and the relationship model I'm looking for in care. And so I kind of had to step back from these plans. Um, and so when I found midwifery within two years of that, it was like, oh, there it is. I just had to open my horizons. I never, somebody asked me the other day, I was talking to my goddaughter, you know, she's 16 and she's a junior. Well, what am I going to do with my life? And I'm like, girl, I didn't even know what midwives were. I, I didn't even know what they were until my twenties. Please just chill out. Like I <laughs> couldn't have told you at 16, that this is where I'd be. So um, honestly, so at that point it was, wow. Okay. Midwifery. I ended up, um, becoming pregnant with my first son at 27 and had him at 28. And I went to a birth center here in Anchorage. Um, and it was great because midwifery in Alaska is very normalized. We have the largest out of hospital birth rate in the nation. Um, and so I was like, oh, I found out about midwives, got pregnant a few months later because I'd been trying, boom, get to go to a midwife. I get this experience, right? I'm like, oh, awesome. Have a great birth. Um, go to 42 and zero. So I, I got to be that primate that just was like, yep, not gonna induce, I'm gonna, this baby's coming out having those hard talks of, I don't wanna go to the hospital, I really want to. <laughs> but um, it was a good primate first experience before even becoming a midwife to walk those two weeks of 40 to 42 and then have a baby in less than nine hours. <sighs> I was so happy about that. Yeah, those um, are a hard last few weeks, mm -hmm. I've been there. It's its, it's, its own pregnancy. Like yeah. that 40 to 42 is its own like trimester in itself um, for a lot of moms. And so mm -hmm. for myself included, uh, I think it was mostly I was an uptight perfectionist in my late 20s. Um, and so I couldn't like let go. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> but um, anyways, and so I had my baby with the midwife. Everything was well. Um, but I actually did not come to midwifery until four years later. Um, and that was just a lot. I mean, if we want to get into the nitty gritty of how you even choose a path of midwifery, it was how was I going to afford the concept of midwifery, especially now that my partner and I had, had a son, right? And so it took four years in my other career. I was a career server. Um, I helped open restaurants. I was a floor manager, all that for 14 years before I became a midwife. I worked all through um, end of high school, college, um, and before midwifery. So 14 years I did that. And um, it's hard to leave that cash. It's hard to leave that cash when I have a kid and I could um, 
you know, my, my partner worked during the day. We're married now. We weren't then, but my husband worked during the day. I was home with the kiddo all day. He came home at three 30. I left at four. I worked from four 30 until 11, right? I came home, went to bed, got up. And this was just the normal lifestyle for us in our late twenties, early thirties. So the concept to how am I going to have a child give up money because as a midwife and a midwife apprentice, how was I going to not make money, right? Like the money I was making as a server um, to take up to three plus years off to also fund an education, right? To fund a pathway. So it's like, how am I going to make up that money for living? And then also take this time in my now early thirties, I came to midwifery um, at almost, well, I was almost 33 when I started my midwifery apprenticeship. Um, and so it took about four years and then I took a leap and I said, you know what, I'm going to do it. I'm going to figure out how, and that's when I started. So this was 2015. And when we talk about pathways and how do you choose to become a midwife? Well, I had a bachelor's degree. So for me, my first question was, I already have a bachelor's degree. What will it take to go for a master's in nursing, right? Funny enough, I had actually been a nursing major for about two um, semesters in my undergraduate because I'd considered um, an advanced nurse practitioner route instead of medical. But um, they wanted me to redo a lot of my micro and microbio and all of this. And I was like, oh, no, absolutely not. Just because there's a different number because you're a nurse and not a med, like pre-med student, I'm absolutely not doing that. So I interviewed at a couple of the colleges here in Anchorage. I called a couple of colleges to get some ideas. It really was, I'm going to do it. And it took 10 weeks of research of really like, how can I take what I already have and make it work for the least amount of time, the least amount of money, best experience, best knowledge. And I quickly figured out that at 30, almost 33 years old, if I went the nurse midwifery pathway, I would have had to redo a good portion of some of my credits. I would have had about seven to eight years of school. Ugh. And at 32, with a four-year-old, with a desire for more children, living in an apartment, you know, <laughs> I was, the concept of losing all of my 30s and my ability to earn money and advance my family's well-being and and their goals it was it was actually just it was it was not acceptable and then the money on top of it because i would have had to become a nurse had the experience and then paid for the advanced degree um, it was something for my family that was not going to be affordable and so um, but then i discovered the pep process so certified professional midwives um, sometimes derogatorily uh, referred to as lay midwives, uh, but really traditional midwifery, not the nursing pathway, but traditional community-based midwifery. Um, I guess traditional would be the wrong word. America doesn't really have a strong tradition with midwifery that goes anyway. But let's say the non-nurse method is um, that became available to me. And I started to research that pathway and it was not funded, right? So there's not a lot, this is 2015. So now people see Meek schools and they see that Meek schools are starting to get some accreditation and some funding, which is awesome. In 2015, this was not as available, um, nor would I have qualified, quite honestly. And it's not because I made too much money. It's because the money and the funding wasn't available in general, just to really anyone. So, um, but I could not have, I mean, my college degree itself was unnecessary 
for me to pursue this pathway in midwifery. That was awesome, but I had it, which is great. And it's a bio background and I was a yoga teacher. So all the anatomy stuff, all great stuff for being, you know, a midwife. Um, but then I figured out, okay, so it's good. It took, it takes about three years. And, um, and I talked to a higher volume birth center here in Anchorage. And what was really beautiful when we talk about my path and my calling, when I made this choice, I was speaking to a girlfriend on my, on the phone. And I was like, you know, I think I'm going to start looking around for local midwives. And she's like, well, you know, we, a mutual friend of ours, we had all served together at a local place called Moose's Tooth, which if you guys don't know, has like the number one pizza in the nation or whatever, we were all serving together there years before. And she said, well, you know, our friend, she's doing that right now over at this birth center. You should give her a call. And I was like, I didn't know that because it had been years since we worked together. And so I called her and we caught up and she's like, you must be like on the same wavelength. My preceptor and I just said that we're going to open applications next week for a new student. Would you like to interview tomorrow? And so I interviewed the next day and I had an apprenticeship start the next week. Um, and so I, I want to stop and let you ask some questions because I know I've talked a lot. But when we say, how did you come to midwifery? Life. <laughs> yeah. A lot of decisions, a lot of weighing of um, the call and the alignment of midwifery over medical, the alignment of lifestyle and relationship based and care. And then how do you pick a path? You get really real about where you are and, you know, and then you choose how to go forward. <laughs> That's kind of where I sat as a 32 year old, almost 33 year old woman with a four year old, you know, in Alaska. Yeah. And I've heard all different answers, of course, on why, but one of the considerations, and I'm wondering if that was for, for you, was doing hospital versus home birth. Was that a consideration in your decision? That's a great question. You know, it's intriguing because when I first started to pursue midwifery, even with a birth center birth, um, I had thought about nurse midwifery for um, actually more access because there, I knew there was credential issues with uh, professional midwifery compared to nurse midwifery, even though nurse midwifery faces it in certain states too. It's not, it's not immune from the midwifery issues of America. Um, so I had considered nurse midwifery to serve in a community birth setting, but to be able to do a little bit more scope wise. Um, but and I had considered potentially working in hospital because I think there's a lot to be said about being in place and being that change. But I am very glad for the pathway I did go and for the experience and the knowledge I did gain in my apprenticeship. You know, because one thing that's not talked about, which I think is really kind of great and hilarious though to bring up is when we look at birth, right, in the community, it's low risk people are great in home settings, but we have to have a really strong risk criteria to really make sure that's a real safe bet, right? And then it's like, oh, you're got that borderline blood pressure. You're probably gonna deliver vaginally, but we're gonna need to keep an eye on you. We're gonna need you closer to resources, you know? Then we have that next tier of not ultimate over the top high risk, but this climb, right? And then immediate surgical birth, things like that. We've got those really interesting tiers. What's intriguing about these tiers of attendance is, the amount of births you have to attend, physiologic childbirth, you have to attend to license. I have to, I had to attend over 60 births as a community midwife and nurse midwives have specific requirements. And I think OBs are even less than that. And so I always thought that was really interesting that, so then why if we're, if physiologic birth is the function and the goal, right? Why aren't OBs being trained in it more? Why aren't, why isn't everyone being required 
to attend as much physiologic birth as possible and have to show those numbers. You know, um, my three-year apprenticeship, I started over 120 clients with my uh, preceptor. I attended over 83 births, right? And I'm talking 83 births happening in place, 120 clients, right? Um, my, the preceptor I worked with, we did mostly VBACs and twins and all of the not high risk, but variations of normal that required a little bit more risk assessment and consideration. So I got a really amazing apprenticeship because she's the only home birth midwife in the state of Alaska or in the city of Anchorage. There are a couple outside of Anchorage, but that will do that type of attendance in the community birth setting. So that was really cool for me. Um, but I bring up the birth attendance specifically because, you know, that's the funniest part is I actually, as a lay midwife, have to do more birth <laughs> to license than any other birth provider actually out there. And may, that's something for us to look at, I think, as a nation, especially yeah. physiologic birth attendance. <laughs> yes. That is very true. I think I just talked about that in one or two podcasts ago with another CPM. Like, I don't understand the, the difference, but I mean, granted, some CNMs do graduate with, you know, way, way, way more than required, but depending on where you are, maybe you just get your minimum. So, um, yeah, that was a good. That was good. And it sounds like you had a really good student preceptor experience. Yeah. Do you want me to chat about that? Because I have a feeling a lot of your listeners want to hear about like the journey. Yeah. Right? And like, uh, how'd you do it? And did you yeah. work? And all okay, those things. Yes. Okay. And then jump in, throw questions while we're going, because I'll okay. ramble, then get me on it. Okay. <laughs> so the three years. So I started my apprenticeship in November of 2015, and I licensed and opened my own practice in May of 2018. So, and the, and I'll get to why that happened, but the idea is it took a little over three years total. I was very blessed. I worked with a high volume birth center that no longer exists in Anchorage, but I did work under um, Jennifer Hoadley, who is the nurse midwife here in Anchorage, also my business partner for Pacific Birth Institute. So plug there. Um, but I worked Hi, under her primary. Yeah, right. <laughs> I worked under her primarily. And then there were four other midwives that were CPMs that I worked with. So I was a CPM apprentice, but I was the primary apprentice to the CNM of the practice, um, which really worked for me because I have a pre-med background. So working under a nurse, a nurse midwife was like, oh yeah, this is great. We have very similar ways of looking at things and how to assess them. Um, but so five midwives, a birth center here in Anchorage. There was a birth center uh, 40 miles north in the Matsu Valley. I did. I attended birth there a lot in the, my last year to complete a lot of my birth counts, but I mostly was in the Anchorage area. I served birth. I So not only did I attend a birth center birth, I attended birth across the Anchorage area. So 40 miles south in Girdwood, 40 miles north in Matsu, and everywhere in between. Anchorage is a huge, sprawling city, even though it's like quarter million people. It's not a lot of people, you know. So um, up at the top of mountains during snowfalls, I'm attending births. You know, I've we've attended, we attended birth in renovated buses, like Greyhounds. I've attended birth in dry cabins. I've attended birth in Airbnbs across this state. I've actually traveled for birth for it. Um, so the apprenticeship was really cool. It was super community-based, right? Um, anytime a client transferred as a student, 
I went with them. So I got a lot of in-hospital labor um, support experiences with epidurals in place, things like that. Because funny enough, I was not a doula before I became a midwife. Um, I know a lot of people are like, well, you should be a doula before you're a midwife. Um, What's funny also about that is by the time I chose midwifery, I had attended five births at that point because I had girlfriends who just kept asking. And so when I was like, I think I'm going to go to midwifery school, one of them looked at me and was like, I, I thought you were a midwife or a doula or something. I was like, <laughs> nope, I just liked birth and you asked me to come. So I said, yes. So again, how did I choose midwifery? Did I choose it at all? Or did it choose me? Yeah. Right? Because this is all already happening, you know? And so three years I was here in town. Could I work? Great question. What I did during that time, I had been a server, like I said, for years. And what I did during that time is I did pick up catering gigs. Um, I had a really good place here in town I worked with. And so I um, would do events for them. Nice thing about being a midwifery student, just a nice little tidbit to remember, is if you are not already at a birth by 3 p.m., then the odds of you being at a birth between like three and eight are very low. And so I took a lot of catering gigs for um, early dinner shifts. And then if I had to get called, if I got called eight, nine, 10, if I was doing a later night, my, I, the bosses knew, right? So I worked my ass off when I could, as much as I could. And honestly, I think I only got called away like once in that three years, but did I do it a lot? Hell no. I did it the most in my beginning when I was not as busy, when I was still earlier in it, I was still getting my feet under me and needed to make up that shift of income because I did stop serving full time. You know, I had been serving five nights a week at that point before shifting to midwifery and that was not going to happen, right? I'm not going to be able to keep that schedule. Um, And so I catered sometimes. Um, I, I think catering is where I kept most of the money um, there, I did not get paid for any birth work. The apprenticeship I was set up with was an, a direct exchange. I did not pay to be an apprentice. I did not, but uh, they did not pay me. Okay. But they, they would pay me if we had a client who, let's say, uh, showed signs of preeclampsia and could no longer begin labor in the birth center or home environment and needed to transfer in, they would pay me as a doula to go be with that client in the hospital, which was a beautiful service that that birth center provided for their clients because prime up transfers the highest rate of transfer and they're going to need the most support. And as a student, I learned a ton as much as those became the most grueling exhausting things, I learned so much about how to professionally react and uh, be in situations and also how to develop a relationship with providers in the hospital setting. So um, as much as it was like, oh no, it was great because <laughs> I did learn so much about that. Were there midwives in your hospital more so or OBs? Yeah. Or? Okay. So yeah, no, it's a great question. So um, we luck out in the state of Alaska. In Anchorage, we have the Providence Hospital here, which is our largest hospital, has the OBHG group, which is a hospitalist group. Um, and they're contracted and they started working while I was in my apprenticeship. So 2015 to 2018, they showed up actually in Providence to um, take over the influx of home birth, home birth transfer. And I don't mean influx, like, oh my God, all of a sudden it was huge. It was actually our community has a 7% out of hospital birth rate. Transfer among primips is around 30%. That is a very normal nationally like standardized amount of transfer, but all the OB practices have their own call. 
And they, we needed a midwifery base on call because none of us as professional midwives have hospital privileges. Um, and so, yes, actually, we really luck out. Um, I sit on the Alaska, the statewide and the Anchorage um, home birth transfer committees. And we work with the OBHGs, the neonatologists um, and the EMS and um, a lot of the incoming provi uh, providers in the hospital setting. We have transfer protocols, we have phone number lists, we're really lucky up here That's because it's, it is, it's very fantastic. I can call, I have cell phone numbers for OBs, MFMs, neonatologists, NICU, all in my phone. Um, and that is, it's changes the game for um, community birth, even though we still have, we still have things, right? There's still OBs who are like home births, not safe. And then I get charts for clients that are literally high risk saying this client wants to go to you now she's transferred and that's what the chart says she's transferred to you and i get it and it's coded out the butt with high risk codes and i'm like okay guys so risk assessment please talk to your ob clients and don't just send them to midwives because they say i think i saw something on youtube and i want a home birth when they will not qualify. So it's been good. I actually had to have a good conversation. I got to have a good conversation with an OB that this happened with. And I sent her all our risk assessment stuff. And she's like, oh, thank you. Nobody had sent it to her. Yeah. Oh, well, here, here you go. Here's how you know exactly when and how we can take clients. Yeah, like we can't just take everybody because they want no. to. <laughs> no, no. Um, okay. So the path. So did I work the catering? Otherwise, no, I did not. Was it hard? Oh my God. Yes. Okay, how did we afford life? I had a partner. Let's be super honest right now. If you can't see me on this podcast, I am a white woman. I'm white, hetero, cis. I have a bachelor's degree. Um, I come, you know, actually, I'm one of the only, I'm one of the first college graduates in my family, which is really cool. Um, so I'm not, I wouldn't say I come from like this white collar background. I actually come from a trades background. Um, and my husband too, college education. He's a computer programmer, right? So we could make, we could air quotes, make it work for three years between credit cards, 401k loans. That was a big thing we actually had to do twice. I never really talk about that. Nobody asks me about that, but because your students really do want to hear this, this is what I want them to hear. We had to like take money against my husband's retirement at least twice in the amounts of 30 to $50,000 to stabilize our, our monthly not monthly shit, but our, that entire budget of living while being in school, because I was not making 35 plus an hour as a server, 40 hours a week anymore. Right. Mm -hmm. I was not making the money I had been making when I was serving. So, um, all right. We actually, Although that's a lot of money. So <laughs> mm -hmm. that was, mm -hmm. I could see how that was so hard to walk away from. Yeah, no, totally. I mean, servers, I'll tell you this right now. If you are a server, a barista, if you do customer service, you make a kick-ass birth assistant and you make a kick-ass midwife. I'm sorry. Should I not cuss? I, will I not think cuss. it's okay. Okay. <laughs> I always forget about that. I'm like a mouth of a sailor. Be nice, Jess. You've been good. Um, but uh, yes, so we, we make great midwives. We make great birth assistants because we anticipate needs all the time. But yeah, it was too, it was good cash. I mean, the thing, when I got done with my undergraduate degree, I got offered a job in the lab for $12 and 50 cents. And at that point I was making 400 a shift at night in the summer working. And I was like, no, yeah, never. So yeah, there's a point where service, the service industry was hard to get out of until I got out of it 
And even then it's like, man, that's hard cash to turn up, but turn down. But now that I'm almost 40, you know, I turn 39 next month. I try to carry stacks of plates now and I'm like, oh, my shoulders. So yeah. I'm okay. <laughs> I'm sure very hard work. Yeah. So hard money to walk away from, but how did we stabilize the money on this side? Um, we, yeah, we took two 401k loans. Um, we sold stuff. Yep. We sold our shit. Um, we watched our budget big time. Um, and uh, those 401k loans actually were not just for my uh, apprenticeship time. Some of it was to fund my own business when I, and when I stopped my apprenticeship, people were like, well, we need midwives everywhere. Why did you have to start your own business? Right. You worked for this birth center practice. Well, because my area where I live is saturated with midwives, right? There are parts of the world that are not. In the Anchorage area alone, though, the birth cap, you know, per capita at 7%, we get about 26 to 28 clients of the average expected fertility um, delivering each month in Anchorage in the community birth setting. We have like nine midwives already in Anchorage and you get 26 clients. Okay, so who's going to make so, right? That's the, that's what we're looking at. And so it became this, no birth centers were hiring, none of that, which is okay. But starting your own business is a totally different thing than being in an apprenticeship. And then all of a sudden having a license and this piece of paper and then getting a salary, like a big girl. So, yeah. so how did that happen? And what, and I mean, you kind of mm-hmm. touched on why, but also I want to know why this big birth center closed that you apprenticed with. I'm going to give a very general because great women and actually the one in the Valley is still open under new ownership. One of the midwives that was part of the bigger one, she opened a new thing out there. So that's cool. The one in the, in Anchorage, it was a lot of midwifery shift, midwife shift a lot. Um, but quite honestly, I, it's, it's, you see it in birth sometimes. Like I don't really have much more to say mm-hmm. to it than that only because. So sometimes the answer is like, you know, whatever, uh, a big, OB practice opened or there was a shift in hospital or, you know, various reasons. And that's kind of what I was getting. Yeah. So I think there was, I think there was a little bit of a saturation going on. I think they might have had more midwives than births coming in at a certain point, but as far as like, I don't want to like, I don't know. You know, you don't, you're not, you're not in that place to say, no, you're not with I'm them. not in the place to say, yeah. And being speculative, I just sound like weirdly judging. I'm like, I don't right. really have anything to do with that. Yeah. Oh, I totally understand. <laughs> yeah. But you know, all for the best, all midwives are doing well that were there. So okay. I'd like you to so all good. is well for the midwives that were there. So that's good. Um, but yeah, so, oh, so opening the business, why? Okay. Like we talked about, like I just said, right. There was a market saturation that 26, 27 number I came up with. There's a cool formula you can use to figure out like how many people on average in your per capita area are in their reproductive, like in reproductive age, how many of those in general, in the general population will give birth. There's ways you can figure that out. And so when I sat down and I learned a lot of that, actually big shout out to Augustine Colebrook. So mm-hmm. I learned a lot. I've had her on. She's amazing person. She's spectacular. Oh, so gosh. Augustine Colebrook, if you are a student midwife who is about to license or within your first three years of practice, I worked with her my first year in practice and it changed everything about the way I was approaching 
um, my alignment with what I was going to do as a midwife and how I was going to practice. So just throwing that out there. But so when we ran those numbers, you know, it was this, okay, the big thing is I still needed to get, I still needed to make money. Right. So I couldn't not, I couldn't just be like, oh, okay, I guess I'm a midwife. I'll just wait and find a job, wait for a job to fall off a job tree. Um, and that doesn't happen. No job trees. <laughs> no job trees. Right. I mean, I will say this, you get on midwife groups. If you're an actual midwife, there are midwife Facebook groups for postings and, oh my God, we yeah. need midwives yeah. in all these different places where I'm at. Not so much. Um, but I still wanted to go forward. Um, I actually had, I had a client at that point. So I, by the time I licensed, so I had somebody who wanted to go forward that had just gotten pregnant as well. Um, and so it was all really beautiful things lined up, but starting a business as a midwife is, um, especially a new midwife, the last three years. So I licensed and opened my, I opened my practice in May of 2018 and it's what December of 2021 right now. Mm-hmm. I can tell you, I've spent 70% of my last three years as a business owner and 30% as a midwife. Does mm. I do my own, my own bookkeeping, mm. my own social media, my own invoicing, my own procedures and protocols and SOPs and my own reporting and my own, all of those things. Yeah. Um, would I actually at this point want to work for anyone else? Nope. I wouldn't think so. No, but I'll say three years of starting a practice, right? Um, because it's pretty saturated. I mean, I had on average deliver about six moms a year, right? So you were like, oh, did it get better every year? It's like, actually these last two years I've had more pregnancy loss and therefore less like in my clientele I've seen and therefore less deliveries. So between six to 10 moms total each Mm -hmm. year. Now, what's funny about that is it sounds like, oh, only that. And it's like, well, yeah, but then also let's get into the lifestyle of being a midwife. Right. Like that's when I did my apprenticeship, I was attending birth. I I actually um, was pregnant with my daughter. My last year of my apprenticeship gave birth to her, took my boards 10 weeks later, took my norm, boom, licensing, moved forward. Right. So had a baby in the middle of all of Mm -hmm. this too. And I think my daughter and our, like our 39 weeks together, she went to 34 births with me. So yeah, she was a busy baby. And I was a tired mama, right? So there's this point where in the last three years, I've had to really settle into actually what kind of lifestyle and sustainability and actual, what is my life? What can I make from midwifery monetarily? What is that worth time-wise, right? Compared to my sleep, my time with my children. And so as much as this market's been saturated and I wanted to be busier because after three years of not making money and wanting to be a midwife and wanting to keep, keep moving, you know, and keep getting that experience and doing all of that, these last three years, understanding that having a slower practice has actually been really good for me. And I work with really good midwives. We back each other up. So it's not that I'm not getting birth experience. You know, it's this, actually, I really like taking my son to school in the morning. And not always possibly pretty much having to say, sorry, you know? Um, but yeah, anyways, let's get back on path. Cause I was like, man, the money game, all of it, there's so much in there. I could talk for hours about. Well, yeah, I have a money, you, the money follow-up question it. is yeah. how, how's your, I mean, it's six to 10 a year. To me, it doesn't sound like very much income. Mm-hmm. How so. have you transitioned to that from you struggling as a student 
and then now you're practicing, but still like, what does that look like? So on the midwifery side, what it looks like is, and this is okay. So I brought up that het cis, like white female thing. It looks like, thank God, I have a husband that had like a nine to five going on, right? Like it looks like, thank God that even if it was crunch, it wasn't my income that was putting the roof over, over our heads because midwifery is about delayed money in a lot of ways, right? So yeah. I start care when I go to bill for a home birth, right? Really uncomplicated home birth, been doing the care for the mom since 10 weeks, between like 10 weeks of care and when she gives birth, I get, I can invoice her for what she owes me according to her insurance, right? Her deductible. And then when she delivers, I bill and I have 60 to 90 days after that billing to get paid. So I'm working 10 months out for money. And how do you do that? I don't know. I don't know, but it's, it, you just do because it's all that's, it's what's happening. Yeah. Right. So what's funny is that actually the last two paychecks I've received were from births I did in May and June for baby appointments. <laughs> so it's, you know, uh, how do you do it by yourself? I don't know. Yeah, I don't. I don't. I, you know, there is a lot to be said for the fact that if my, I did not have a partner who didn't have a, who had, my partner had the job, the American dream job in that sense, right? Like while we were going through all of this, if I just go to work and they pay me. I mean, I've never had a job like that. I'm a mm -hmm. server. I'm a server and a midwife. I've never had PTO. I've never had a 401k, like no shit. I don't know if this is, I think a lot of people in midwifery, especially the path I choose, have not had this experience of uh, white collar professionalism ever extended to them necessarily. And I have a bachelor's degree. Yeah. Right. So, yeah. So now though, I'll say this in general, how does the money work out? It would not be enough for me to sustain my life and my children. I would need to be doing about three and a half to four times as much birth. I'd be needing to do two to six plus births a month to be able to afford my life without a partner. Um, and that I think is kind of atrocious. And I'm sorry to say that because it's really hard because I don't know how I'd, midwifery is unsustainable in America right now. If somebody said to me, should I become a midwife? I'm like, well, are you 20? Are you already in a nursing program? Absolutely. Absolutely. Take the loans, become a nurse midwife. You're going to have a great trend for your, your economic gain over time is going to exceed your immediate sense in debt and you're young. You're not going to lose a lot of money. Go for it. Nurse midwifery. Somebody was like, should I become a professional midwife? I was like, is it a hobby? Sure, sure, sure. Because if you broke down how much money I've spent on this career versus how much I've made, I'm still in a very strong investment holding pattern. <laughs> because that's yeah. how it is you know like we work our asses off and then you know medicaid pays me a thousand dollars that's ridiculous. to deliver a mom and a baby safely so they don't die in childbirth a thousand dollars this is, it's very 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 sad it's well it's atrocious and it definitely is not going to uh increase midwifery in no. the United States at, at this current goal and at this current rate, which is funny because this brings us into all the reasons why I started a birth institute a year into being a licensed midwife and why I started doing that. Because that, when you say, how did I make the money work? 
I started getting really creative with actually paying attention to why the money's not working and starting to like hone in on that and focus on that because everything I'm saying, it's true. It's like, no, this career actually doesn't work this way. Right. There are some really great pockets in the world where it works really well. There's some really midwifery has a really good midwifery matters and it belongs currently in America. We don't know what that means for us. Mm-hmm. We've got nurse midwives. We've got traditional midwives. We have indigenous midwives. We have people derogatorily calling people lay midwives. We have, and yet we have no standards of care. We have no standards of risk assessment and community attendance. We have no standards of Title IV funding to actually educate midwives at the rate we need them. We have no regional accreditation for most midwifery universities. And what I want most people to understand there, if you are pursuing a MEEK program and you want to take this bachelor's degree, that's going to be this bachelor's of midwifery, you better make sure that that school you're with has regional accreditation, so your bachelor's isn't fake. Oh, what do you mean? I mean, if you wanna go get a master's in public health because you're a little burnt eight years later, but you got this degree you did spend 20 to $40,000 on, right? This bachelor's of midwifery. If you didn't get it from the right school, it's useless. And that's atrocious. Yeah. That's, a tr- that's, that's, no, that's actually negligence. That's, prof- that's, I can't even believe that actually occurs in this country. And that we have the audacity to have a push for meek education without regional accreditation and extensive Title IV funding backing all of it. I just say, watch out, midwives. Yeah, so that, so touch on that a little bit more because you kind of mentioned that offline about it transitioning from. Oh, the CPM, like the, you know, and this is, I will will say this, do your research, talk to the midwives near you. The push for licensure, what a certified professional midwife is and if that even matters in your state, all of that is so state-dependent. Right. We have this national picture of midwifery right now. And I'll give you like a little recap. And God knows you're going to want to research and I don't want to chop any of these words up. But in 2010, the International Confederation of Midwives and the US MARA, which was the Midwifery Education and Research Accreditation, I believe is what the acronym is. They all met the ICM, US MARA, ACOG, ACNM. They all met and said, okay. Midwives are a real thing and we're going to we're going to need them because what we can also talk about is the physician crisis no one's talking about which is we have more doctors retiring than we have graduating right so in 2010 we said we want to have more midwives but we need to start looking at international competencies we need to actually start standardizing the practice of midwifery in the United States so we can have some more international like well, I don't know you know just uh, streamline competency, which is not a bad thing. We love that, right? Let's make sure all midwives are getting what they need to do their jobs well. Big thumbs up. And so they got all together and they said, this is what it's going to take to create an educational program that is not a master's degree. So not a nurse midwifery program, but that is a, I'm using air quotes, a more direct entry or professional midwifery education. And it's going to have to have all of these specific things, competencies, cultural competencies, things like that. Um, and if people take that and they take the NARM, the National um, Association of Registered Midwives exam, then they can license and everything is good, right? And they will be meek educated. They'll be educated enough to meet these standards of competency um, for education to be called good midwives. So that was 2010. Between 2010 and 2020, there's been a big push 
for licensure of midwives. Now, these are not bad things, right? We want midwives licensed. We want them getting paid well. We want more people everywhere being able to attend birth and have birth and home and birth center settings. So this is all good stuff. We're glad that there is this push to get midwifery out there. There's been a lot of licensure talk, though, with the big push for midwifery, where the new states that are lining up to um, instigate licensing will only license meek-educated midwives. And I say meek, it's the Midwifery Education Accreditation Council. There are specific universities that are called meek schools, so I'm just going to call them meek schools right now. Um, so you have the meek pathway, which is you're going to go get a bachelor's in midwifery. You're going to do your apprenticeship, possibly simultaneously or right after, and you'll license and you will have, you will be a meek midwife, right? You'll just be a midwife, a certified professional midwife. These states that are pushing on state levels, that licensure should only go to students who have received a meek education, actually stand that that entire push, in my opinion, stands in defiance of the fact that the CPM can be granted still not only to meek midwives, but to midwives who take more localized, traditional routes called the portfolio evaluation process, the PEP process, okay? Mm -hmm. We should never be getting rid of the PEP process. We've been told it will never go anywhere, right? Because it increases access, the apprenticeship model, not needing this next, uh, I don't know, 20 plus thousand dollars worth of um, care or education, all of that. So between 2010, 2020, though, we've had a huge push to get more states licensed, but they're only licensing for meek. In the state of Alaska alone, where I live, right? 2018, so I am a PEP midwife. What that means is I paid $2,000 for Via Vida School of Midwifery. It is the same as the National College of Midwifery is pretty much layout from what I've been told to understood, which is kind of cool but it was hundreds of hours broken into modules of all of my education, my school of midwifery, right? I had to complete all of that during my apprenticeship. And thankfully the other apprentice I was working with was doing it as well. And so we were doing it together. We had all these uh, preceptors to work with and learn and all of that. And both of us passed our NARM. Woo, great, wonderful, right? Um, it cost me $2,000 for that portion of my education. I had over 120 clients I started, attended over 83 births, three years under five midwives, plus that, right? And I got to license, right? So what sucks right now is that the push is to only license in these new states, the midwives that have gone for this education, mm -hmm. for the meek education. And why does that suck, right? I mean, of course we want more education. That's not a bad thing. Of course we want competency, right? What sucks about it is where's the funding? Where is the piece of paper that says my piece of paper that I'm about to pay you for actually matters for anything? Besides a career that has yet to be stabilized across all 50 states. Elizabeth Catlin in the state of New York is, she just had her, uh, she's about to have her sentencing hearing, right? She was arrested for home, for providing home birth in the state of New York, 94 counts or something. So, <laughs> It's to me, you got a cart and a horse issue here. I'm all about competency. But if you're going to come up with bachelor's degrees of midwifery, and you're going to require people to shell out five figures, which they cannot get good funding for, and this thing may not be accredited, then I think it's a sham. Because what also ends up happening, now am I calling meek schools a sham? I'm not calling anybody a sham. I think it's ill-advised. And it is not well thought out 
because increasing educational output for a career that is not stabilized with salary, with any type of tuition guarantee, without anything to help it actually advance itself, what's the, what do you think is the number one thing we've seen happen in Alaska? Let's put that to it. In 2020, we stopped accepting my type of education in the state of Alaska. If I had licensed, if I had licensed until now, I would not be able to license. I'm not a midwife to them. What's really interesting too, is there's like two meek educated midwives in the state of Alaska. And do you know what our C-section rate was in 2015? 5.3. That's awesome. So, and what's compounded about this anger I get about this cart before the horse issue is the birth settings of America report in 2019, which is one of the most extensive looks at what does birth setting, what does the birth setting in America have to do with outcome found specifically that no matter educational status of the midwife, period, no matter how they got to become a midwife, their outcomes for home birth in the community would be the same in mortality for maternal and neonatal outcomes if the hospital was well integrated and had streamlined transport processes. Had nothing to do with the education of the midwife. In every instance, if we controlled for the hospital accepting midwives and working with them and having transport protocols, Neonatal mortality was the exact same at home as in the hospital. That's true. Mm -hmm. That's real. So this push for meek, this push for college, this push for all of that, um, it has created real barrier access, like barriers yeah. to access for students, um, which is why I founded the Pacific Birth Institute. It infuriated me that we would continue down this concept. What really infuriates me is the indoctrination of it. Yeah. It is such a patriarchal holdover to consider the fact that you need to remove somebody from the community in order to better serve their community. That is such like college in general, when it comes to healthcare, if you cannot learn in place, then what the hell are you gonna provide to the people in place when you come back after you learned what, where? It's so old, like the whole paradigm has totally broken, right? To take care providers out of their space, educate them and then put them back mm -hmm. or to take them into schools or to make them do these other things instead of literally learn from the people of their community and from the people they're serving in their community, how best to keep doing what they've been air quotes called to do unavoidably getting pulled into however you want to talk about how you orient with your life and how this happens right and so um but forming the pacific birth institute was that education it's not indoctrination it's about education it's about honoring of place it's about actually we have more physicians that are retiring right now than that are being hired on and being matriculated into school it's the return of the assets of the intelligence of community birth and the innate capacity of birth to all communities to grow innate capacity in general. So that communities don't say three to four times as many black women are dying in hospital birth. That's one way to say that obstetric led birth over the last four generations has destroyed unnecessarily women of color, mm -hmm. murdered women of color. That's another way to say that, but we don't even have to get mean about it. What are the good things we do know? How do women of color do best the same way when white women do best when they are attended by midwives in a relationship-based status that has not only relationship-based care model but there is a cultural relevancy and there's a cultural connection and match between the provider and the caregiver themselves is that race no 
Race can be a component of it. It's actually the fact that if you can match in any way, shape or form, and you are of the same culture, community, mm-hmm. and they have a relationship with you, the clients have the best outcomes, period. We know it works for white women because that's what midwifery serves in America right now. And so we know, and we knew, we know that it's not working well right now for black women in the, in the hospitals. And so what do we know that's good is women of color deliver really well under other women of color or other women of culture or women they have relationship with. And that's what's been missing in the OB-led experiment that we've had with childbirth over the 20th century. So this return to community birth is actually a reclaiming of what we know to be true. And it's a putting of the education back into the hands of the people that childbirth is not rocket science. And actually it is best attended by people who are close to to each other. It's It's a community thing, just like death. Birth and death belong to the community Mm -hmm. and community capacity and ability to feel resilience and know how to help orient itself and everything is based in that ability to feel like anybody who wants to come to birth can say, yes, I can. Yes, I can. We need it. We need it everywhere. So yes, I can. And I'm finding access points anywhere I need to. Um, And that's so to me, it's yeah, I love that we're educating midwives more. I think I also opened a birth institute to make it a little cheaper to get the knowledge into the hands of especially people who need the skills in rural areas where they do not have immediate access to emergency care. That's a big faction of midwifery care we do not fund well enough, which is service in place away from large um, hospitals. And maternity care deserts are one of the largest growing epidemics in the United States. You know, space or time of distance from emergency care. It's rapidly increasing across the United States right now. So tell me more about Pacific Birth Institute. What's its purpose? Yeah. Okay. Oh, uh, you know, I think I love that's being a good a segue into that. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. It's so funny. Had I known about the Pacific Birth Institute and where it was coming, like, and how that was going to come through when I first was thinking about becoming a midwife, I probably would have been too scared and never did it. Like I had to fall so in love with midwifery and so in love with direct care and so in love with all the learning I had. And then I open my practice and I get to work with other midwives and that's going. But man, what comes through is the Pacific Birth Institute within a year of practicing that I'm working with Jen Hoadley, my partner, and we're chatting and we're like, man, you know what midwives need? We need birth assistance. We need the ability to serve more clients now because we are get, there are clients everywhere that aren't getting served, right? So the Pacific Birth Institute is a nurse midwife and a professional midwife that really were like, hey, we have a lot of needs and we're actually seeing a lot of things show up um, infrastructure or not show up infrastructure wise and economically that are going to be huge issues over the next, not only decade, but the rest of the century if we don't start looking at them, like increasing educational costs without stabilizing jobs on the other side. That is not going to be a good idea that why would anybody do that? Um, And so we founded it for for a lot of different reasons, but our goal is to get education back into the hands of everyone. And our flagship program, the Professional Birth Assistant Program was specifically made because Jen and I in Alaska Jen was picking up big time in her business um, with one of her practitioners. They have practices in three different parts of the state. Um, And I was doing my thing, but all of a sudden I couldn't back Jen up as much and Jen couldn't back me up as much. And then Rachel, another midwife we're working with, she started having this happen and she's traveling to Sitka now to deliver babies. So she's gone for three weeks. And it was this, okay, we know 
due to the physician crisis, due to maternal mortality, and just in general, people wanting to come home to birth, wanting to return to the community, to this sense of birth not needing to be a medical event, but a life event, that if we don't start supporting midwives any way we can, not just saying you need a degree, but like supporting midwives any way we can, we would be doing a disservice to midwifery and we may start to further lose the generational translation of lineage. Midwifery is passed hand to hand. I don't care how many textbooks you read. I don't like read them all, write some, I don't give a shit. If you are not there and you are not teaching, you are, as I, I mean, Jen and I stand by this big time. You are a mid, when you're a midwife, you're a teacher. If you aren't teaching, you aren't passing it on. Does it mean you have to have students all the time? No. Sometimes midwives really need to step away from students. And I get that and I honor that. The big thing we know is students and midwifery, that is one of the parts of our infrastructure around midwifery right now that is not being addressed. So you can tell a student to go get a degree, but where are they going to get the preceptor? Where are they going to get the apprenticeship? Where are they going to get the amount of births in the right amount of time so they're not having to take more loans to stabilize their life because their preceptor only has so many births? So a three-year apprenticeship became five, right? I will be honest too. Not a lot of people talk about attrition in the midwifery career path. I had 14 apprentices start under me to replace me. In, in three years, we had 14 apprentices start me and three other, two other finished and me and one other are practicing in three years. So one in 10 midwives, one in 10, mid, one in 10 students, let's say this, one in 10 students on average will actually license. And we'll, I, and <laughs> this is the worst part is the career attrition seven years. So if we were only catching maybe 10% of the people who start and get them working, and they're only going to hang for seven years max, potentially because of what it sits at right now. And did you know midwives are also subject to a 70% divorce rate in those seven years? I knew it was high. 70%. These are not acceptable. Yeah. We don't just let women tolerate this. We don't let midwives tolerate this. This is indicative of everything that is wrong. But like everything that is wrong with our care model right now. So anyways, ask me a question. Let's get on to a different path, but it's this. I'm like, I can get really too big about it really too quick because it's a lot there. I love your passion though. Yeah. So with the Pacific Birth Institute, our big things were we, we like just to keep it like really succinct, our four pillars really are education, innovation, um, entrepreneurship, and infrastructure. Right. So with the um, pro BA program, so our um, professional birth assistant program, every student's tuition has a $500 credit baked into it that goes directly to the midwife who is willing to take them to five labors so they can get some experience. Um, it also has baked into it affiliate links so that students can make money if they chat about our program and somebody's like, I want to learn about it. Great. They get their own link for the program and they make, um, I think it's 250 every time a program sold. So they make money that way. Our goal with the professional birth assistant program specifically was to help people who were not quite sure if midwifery was it for them, who wanted to find out more before investing, like I did, you know, six figures into my life in the last six years, right? Um, a lot of people want to work in birth. They just don't want to be on call all the time. Mm -hmm. 
you know, when we made this program too, initially, it was honestly for all of our clients. I'm not even joking. All of our clients who just, because if you work in the birth world, the home birth world specifically, oh, I love what you guys do. I want to help moms too. I was thinking about taking a doula program. I was thinking about this, but the elusive butt. But my husband works full time, but he's on the slope. But I have young kids, but I'm not sure if I can afford it. But who's going to be able to help with this? But, 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 because you know why that butt's there? Because it should be. Because what midwifery and even doula-ing ask of individuals right now is to take on a collective illness issue and sacrifice individual wellness because of it. Yeah. And that's not okay. Being on call 24-7, 365 for a doula client that you might get six to $1,200 off of after five weeks of on call, all of that, to have the hospital turn around during this pandemic to say your entire money, your entire income and lifestyles no longer allowed. I actually had a doula group talk to me uh, here in town this last year when this happened, when the hospitals were pushing back. And I said to him straight up, and I actually said this to some other doctors too. I was like, I need you to show me the actual data that shows that my non-symptomatic self, right, as the doula entering this hospital increases transmission risk to the same extent that my absence for my client in this situation is gonna fuck her up. Because I can tell you right now, me being here reduces obstetric trauma and C-section rate between 30 to 40%. Me infecting anyone with COVID asymptomatically is a different thing. So, you know, there's, there, I just, I felt for doulas this last year. Point. It's, I feel, I'm like, you can't give me the data that says yeah. me walking around as an asymptomatic vector with a mask on right now to support this woman is scarier or worse than the fact that this woman without me actually has a huge increase in trauma, perineal laceration, all of this, and yeah. C-section. That's disgusting. And oh, I'm sorry, it could be a liability issue. So I feel for doulas and I feel for midwife students who really want to do it and who even do, but then realize 24 7, 365 on call, running your own business, right? Being in this world, it's it, without support. And then all of a sudden, like for doulas, your money getting stripped like that, yeah. no good. So the birth assistant training was really for anybody who wanted to work in birth, but couldn't develop or couldn't dedicate 24 7 on call to it. Because our students here, like we'll be running in June 22 here in Alaska, June 2022 our birth experience. Um, and we'll have eight students that'll be running with eight different midwifery practices across Anchorage and Matsu, and they'll be running a shared call so that my students can get up to five birth experiences in four weeks, but not be on call all summer. Mm -hmm. They rotate. Mm -hmm. And so it's this concept of how can we get people into birth, right? So the program itself is 60 hours of prerequisite, basic, and advanced like skill knowledge so that you can anticipate and assist at any routine or complication care management in the home or birth center setting next to a midwife. If you're a student midwife or a PEP midwife who didn't feel as good about their background um, education in let's say, I don't know, cord prolapse, suturing, IVs, all of that, this is a good program as well for student midwives who are really just starting out as well, who want to get a really good foundational knowledge. We focus on the etiology, the assessment, the management, and the charting specifically for our assistants for everything that you could encounter as a birth assistant. Um, and yeah, it's funny because actually there are a couple birth assistant programs out there already. And I, uh, it was so funny because they're like 10 hours. 
And I was speaking with somebody who had written a birth assistant program. They're like, mine's like 12 hours. What do you have 60 hours to talk about? And I was like, well, I live in Alaska. So if I have a birth assistant and I'm literally in buck, buck nowhere and we have something going on, I need that birth assistant. I need them as skilled as possible. This isn't right. please hand me scissors. This is you're doing by manual while I'm, I'm throwing an IV and then you're pressure bagging that IV while I take over on here, right? Like this is, we are, we are in Alaska, yo. Like and midwives are serving in place, meaning you need to be skilled. So what's kind of cool if people ever want to know, we teach not only about all these big words, but we need to teach about fun stuff, right? We send IV supplies to all of our students and do online IV practice with slabs. So everybody gets to practice IV insertion, right? We do all the vitals management. All of our students actually get Dopplers and blood pressure cuffs and stethoscopes because that's a big part of getting people in, in the place working. Supplies cost money. All of this costs money, right? My O2 tanks, all of these things that, you know, over time, you just, they cost money. Getting our students those has been really a big point for us is like, get them the supplies to learn now. Um, and so, yeah, we do a lot of fun stuff like that. We have a 12-week immersive online component to it. Augustine will be doing a really cool course with us. Amy Hatterer with Motherboard Births is going to come on board with us. We're going to do a lot of cool live webinars. Um, we're going to have uh, teaching you how to do Leopold's maneuvers, assessing fetal heart tone, um, all sorts of stuff. And so, yeah. It sounds fun. So people do their like integration in their community or do they come mm -hmm. to the last? Okay. And so what's funny is this last year we had a couple of skills weekends for our students here in Alaska and both of our skills weekends, we had somebody from Reno and somebody from Oregon come. Mm. And then it was like, because our students, we have students right now in 14 states and four nations. And so it was one of those, how do we get, because the midwives are the ones who are really teaching. Let's be honest, right? I mean, okay, that was a little pause because my battery almost died. But anyway, um, Pacific Birth Institute, you had some come to Alaska. Oh, yes. Perfect. Yes. yes. Thank you. So we had students show up for skills weekends, like three day skills weekends with Jen and I and some other um, instructors, NRP and BLS instructors in Homer, Alaska and in Anchorage, Alaska. And we we're like, OK, we because you, you know what? Let me jump back. Let me tell you a real quick story about when Jen and I opened the Pacific Birth Institute. We opened the Pacific Birth Institute in October of 2019 with our first cohort of nine students registered to launch January of 2020. Everybody remembers what happened soon then after. Yes. So we got, I think one, we had a whole layout and it was just for local students. This wasn't even gonna be for anybody outside of Alaska initially, right? This was gonna be for us to get some birth assistance in Kenai, Matsu and Anchorage areas where we were serving. So we had more backup, right? And then the, you know, pandemic hits. And we had been using online education stuff. We had just been getting into putting all of our stuff into this cool online format. So now we feel like we are kind of ahead of the curve for the pandemic, which is cool. But we were just getting into this, like getting it all on there. But we had it set up where we were gonna do like five to 10 hours of homework for the month or whatever, and then the skills weekend. So like two days of skills. So four weeks of work and then two days of skills and like do that for six months and be done. Well, obviously we got one weekend into that pandemic hit. We were done. We didn't even get to meet again until like May, but we were doing a lot of online. And so Jen and I were like, holy crap. So we got everything we could online, right? 
Um, and those students were champs. They were our first group. They ended up taking about 12 months to finish because a lot of midwives couldn't take students because the pandemic was so immediately like a, holy shit, we got to stop everything. Um, but the students were champs and they did it. The midwives got through it. We all got through it, which was great. Um, but in that process, Jen and I, after that first group were like, okay, we got to get it all online. We have to get it more online than we actually knew we had like the amount of the data. Cause to have some, this is what happens like postpartum hemorrhage, right? Like our maternal hemorrhage course, right? This is the rate of occurrence in the population. This is exactly, you know, these are the signs. These are the four T's of hemorrhage and all this stuff, right? Boop, boop, boop. You can get a lot of textbook stuff on there. But then when it's, you know, here, let's pretend someone's going into shock, right? Let's run a whole hemorrhage scenario so you can see how quickly these things shift. That's something you have to kind of do as much as possible in person. And there's limits to that that Jen and I have figured out, obviously. <laughs> but there have been a lot of creative new ways for us to bring more of the skills we were doing in person actually into people's homes. And so over these two years, we've shifted into this online format. Um, but what's kind of great is we still do in-person stuff, but now the in-person stuff we're going to be doing, we're going to be taking into the lower 48. But as that comes out and as we do fun stuff, like I'm going to be working with Augustine, I'll be teaching at her um, midwifery conference in Galveston, Texas in November. Woo -woo. So if you want to come do stuff there, I'll be running all the birth assistant training there. Woohoo! So um, we're going to be doing more of that. But then, so now we send IV supplies to students. We send supplies to students. And we also have an exclusive midwife network of all of our midwives that we do pay. And we're growing that all the time. Like that's consistently growing midwives so that our students, when they're done, they can take their little certificate and stuff and say, I did this course. I've been, you know, this is what I'm doing. And they'll give you $500 just to take me to five labors. I don't even call it birth anymore because community birth five community births could take 12 attendants. You never know, you know what I mean, for actual birth to finish. So we try to get people in there, get their skills going, but we try to give them 60 hours and a lot of hands-on skills before then so that when they walk in, this is really great for helping prepare. And so midwives were listening, right? This is great to help prepare students who need to get really good, really quick at understanding how to help. And one of the reasons we also made this was for students to be able to get really good really quick so they could make money as birth assistants while they're apprentices. Because yeah. making money while you're an apprentice is hard, right? And some people won't want to pay apprentices who are assists. But I tell you, if you come correct to an apprenticeship and you start helping right from the get-go and they're going to be spending that money on a birth assistant or another midwife anyways... I don't know. I'd say you have a good, like you got a good uh, chip in your pocket to gamble with right there and get yourself. So what did you do before birth assistance? When I've experienced home birth, the two communities I've lived in, there was birth assistance. Sometimes they were just birth assistants. Sometimes they were like such as yourself, a CPM student. So what did you and do before? I guess I don't understand your question. Like you who mean? did you use as your second person? Oh, always midwives. Okay. Other midwives. Yeah. And that, and that becomes all of a sudden a huge tax on midwives. Right. Because now you got midwives that are like, oh, I have two or three clients. Oh, I have seven. Now we have 10 clients. Right. That was yeah. a big part of it. You know, when in kind of along those lines of six to 10 births a year, that became, it started to feel okay for me to have that, especially with birth assistance. If I was not also attending 20 to 40 other births with other midwives, 
because we always want to say yes to each other, right? We always want to help. And we always, because we know, we know you just, I mean, best thing about midwives is we're not going to say no to each other often. Doesn't mean we should be martyry, but it means that we, we like to show up for each other because Mm -hmm. we know how important it is. Right. But that starts to really hurt midwives. And so we need more trained birth assistants. In my opinion, if we could have three birth assistants that could rotate call for every midwife in this nation, every midwife right now could double their client load without actually stressing themselves out, increase their money, even with increased output to a birth assistant, they would increase their overall capital and regain sleep and reduce their stress. So when, so for me, so Jen is the director of curriculum. She is my powerhouse research nerd. She is a photographic memory genius. Um, it's annoying. Um, she's a Scorpio. She's vicious. I love her. Um, <laughs> she's smart, right? She was my preceptor. She's the director of curriculum. A lot of the stuff you see around um, all of the big complication stuff, that's all Jen's brainchild. I'm the director of development. I'm the one that's saying, you know, what really chaps my ass is this lack of infrastructure. You know what I love to do? Systems development. <laughs> And so, you know, I've helped open four different restaurants. I've revamped and written training manuals. I'm a systems connoisseur. This is like how I operate. And so I looked at Jen when we were creating this and I was like, I think I'm building my like ideal job right now. I think I just am going to get paid three to $400 because we pay our birth assistants well. Okay. We pay new, like you have to have some obviously experience, but when you're ready to be paid, we pay you $300 a birth. And when you're good, 10, 15, 20 births in, and you're like going with it, we'll pay you 400 bucks a birth, right? A lot of, and this is the thing is, this is a way to help get more women money now. It doesn't mean we can't have male birth assistants. It's just not typically the demographic that comes, right? Um, But women who have children and start to lose career growth, right? Have to put anything on pause or, like me, maybe you, be in school while childbearing, right? By doing both to try to advance both aspects of the life at the same time, that gets too much. It gets to be too much. And a lot of people, I think it's completely well put for women to say, I actually don't want to give up my life for other people's babies. Yeah. But I'd like to deliver or I'd like to help assist. I'd like to be in birth the days I want to and not have to worry about my phone ringing all the time. Yeah. So, cause for me, the infrastructure concept is we have to start looking at the CNA aspect, the birth assistant, birth assistants have always existed. They, like you said, they've been student midwives. They've been younger students of students. They've been people who have just served before and they want to come work tonight, but not all the time, right? Um, and if we are going to have such a return of birth to the community, which we know is already happening, it increased, we had an 80% increase in the return to community birth before between 2000 and 2010. And that is still continuing to happen. So for me, you can have make education, you can have Title IV funding or not, you can have regional accreditation or not, that all is going to be what it is. To me right now, it's, we also just need people who want to learn, getting skilled, getting out there, working with midwives now, period. Not, not after 12 years of medical school, not after three years of, of midwifery school and maybe two to three more years of apprenticeship and hundreds of thousands in debt and lost wages. And sure, here's a thousand bucks for Medicaid. Thanks for being a primary care provider for delivering that mom and she didn't die. Good job. No, I was like that metric. No, that's not going to work. And so if we want to incentivize 
the entrepreneurship of community birth and put that responsibility and the innate capacity to serve our communities back into the hands, then we need to increase education and the innovation of the infrastructure itself, which is great. So let's build it from the ground up and let's pay the midwives. Just pay the midwives. Pay the midwives to take the students. They're already doing the work. We need them to do the work. The problem is they're not getting paid to do the work. So we'll pay them. We'll educate students very well. We'll get them out there. We'll put them in contact with midwives. And then we are going to pay those midwives to take those students. And what all of our students learn, these births are your job interviews. You want to work in community birth? Show up. Like, here you are, right? Because that's one thing that isn't talked about a lot, too, with birth is working with midwives is like, you, we, we watch women, when things get hard, push harder. So yeah, if you want to work in birth, learn it, get out there, work with the work with the birth providers around you, interview, show up correct, right? See what their practice is like, but you shouldn't have to give up your life, your beautiful life, your children's futures, they're every day with them, you know? I mean, there's part of me that's like, yeah, um, I'd rather just be on call for high volume community birth, right? What I do with my students here, having eight different practices. So somebody's getting called every day right? So you're making three to $400 just every day. So you can work eight days, you know, eight days a month as a stay-at-home mom, get called, right? That's more than you're going to make at any other gig or with yeah. MLMs typically, or any of the other stuff that we're trying to use to help women make money so that they can afford their life with their kids without a man. I mean, that's where midwifery sits, unfortunately. Can women make money for themselves and afford their lives? That's where we are. And so we're trying to broaden and expand and diversify and differentiate the way that people can access birth and make money without losing, without having to fall into this 24 seven, 365 thing. I love how you've said, I can't control the system. You can't change the system, but you can come from underneath and say, but here's what we can fix down here, which ultimately could potentially ripple and, and eventually change that in the system. But you can't change it from up here. You got to come down here. Well, and it's also, it's, you know, our pillar, like our pillars being education, innovation, entrepreneurship. The number one pillar actually is innate capacity. And Jen, it's funny because Jen's like, what the hell are you talking about, Jess? My birth. <laughs> and I was like, this is really important to me because I want, I mean, it is important. It's a real actual words matter talk. Right, like we talked about earlier, is are three to four times the amount of women of color dying just in hospital? Is that is that a passive statement? Is that a factual? I mean, it is true, but it sounds kind of like it just happens. Does it just happen because they're women of color? Does it just happen because it's a hot like it? When you use words, you reaffirm stories that uplift, or you reaffirm narratives that keep power away. And so innate capacity, when you're talking about like this, you're not even talking about touching this system. It is, we, in order, we have faced this reality. All of us have faced the reality that OB led birth was a good experiment and it's not working out. And it's okay. Like the biggest thing for us is, you know, we need our OBs, but we need them to work with high risk and we need a lot more low risk providers because we're gonna need every OB for every high risk client possible. That's what people don't seem to understand. They're not. I don't think OBs are greedy at all. I think the whole paradigm just needs to kind of shift, you know, because we're going to need them for the high risk. So the innate capacity is not, I'm not mad at midwives or meek. 
or regional accreditation. I'm not mad at ACOG. I mean, I could eviscerate all of them if I want to play a wards matter game, but it's not about that. It's a, okay, instead of just facing this and calling this reality, I don't. I turn and I create reality. That's what Jen and I do. We say, okay, cool. But now from this data, what do we want? Because if we continue a narrative that community birth isn't normal, actually newsflash way more normal than this experiment we've been running for four, you know, four or five generations, um, that women of color just die more. That's not true. That's not true in systems that support them, is it? That's not true. Like, so it's no, we're going to build the systems we want. You know, we have a huge scholarship program where we match every five um, tuitions with a tuition. And we predominantly target and focus on giving scholarships to students in rural areas who are backing up midwives now who need real good skill and students of the global majority and indigenous students. Because, and people will say, but if you're white women, why would you do that? That's like, I mean, I, I can get it. And I say, well, you know why? Because we need 70% matriculation to all medical programs, nurse midwifery programs, midwifery programs alone, and education to actually be preferentially given to non-white individuals if we don't want to be racist about it. Because right now, why people are dying is the lack of culturally matched care, the lack of relationship-based care. So for us, it's this, no, I'm not going to give in to the world that you've created that, and this is what we call, this is paradigm shift. What you see with OB-led birth and this hospital, indoctrination of education, removed from home to deliver everyone, right? It's, this is, we're going to bring it all home back to the capacity of each person. No, it is in everyone's capacity and every community's capacity that if you are inspired like me to follow your calling, to work in birth, that any community can conspire to provide you the avenues to do it, that we can get you education that doesn't cost excessive amounts of money, right? We can get you working and supported in this birth industry. And so, yeah, it's, it's funny when you say coming up from under, I'm like, it is, we're just going to nourish the soils because diversity is one of the largest metrics of health in any ecosystem. You know, I'm really into permaculture because midwifery and permaculture are very matriarchal ether-based physics and sciences in themselves. They're power with dynamics. They're not power over. Destructive paradigms are power over. And you know what you see with destructive paradigms? Somebody at top, everybody below. It's OB-led birth, right? Do you know what sustainable paradigms look like? According to permaculture specifically, the exact inverse. You take a man overall and you invert it and you say, wow, now everybody, now everything that's wrong is our fault. It's a real great way to keep people trying to band-aid huge dam breaks on bad shit. So what I mean by that is, okay, well, we have doulas now. Why do we have doulas as a career? I just want to put that out there. Like, why do doulas exist in this generation? Is it to advocate for and reduce the risk of obstetric violence and rape? I mean, what some do doulas it. do? Yeah, some of it, right? Of course, they, they support families and women and babies. I mean, I love doulas. Mm. I love doulas. So this is not me talking shit about doulas. Believe me. I adore them. I want them at all my births. But why do you exist? I mean, is a doula, would a doula not just be a member of your community in any other anthropologic time in history? Right. Yeah. So we literally sister, have a job yeah, right now. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So we have a job now. Specific. 
for home and hospital, but definitely needed in the hospital environment that is here to provide support because advocacy needs to be rectified with a job title like doula inside of a destructive paradigm of birth like the OB-led model. So a doula is a sustainable measure to a destructive paradigm. And what happened, what happens to sustainable uh, measures on destructive paradigms the moment the, the tower starts to collapse like it did with the pandemic? Did the sustainable measure immediately fall away? Did it become completely easily, well, well we're gonna do that just to make it look good, but now that things are shaking, we don't give a shit. Doula's gone, WIC yeah. access, kids services, schools. Acts, I mean, it is insane how many services run through our elementary schools alone for kids to not get lost in our systems. Yeah. Sustainable metrics destroyed by destructive paradigms. That's when you know sustainable metric is a band-aid that was never gonna work. You know why? Because it was justifying into reality the need for the destruction in the first place by trying to cover it up. Honestly, it's like a woman saying, he doesn't hit me that hard. It's not that bad. You know, sometimes when we take a better nap and he's nicer, it's really not that bad. So kids, it is but what he loves me. Likes, but he loves me. This is what, and that's, so this is destructive and this is sustainable. Both of them are dead. Regenerative, regenerative, regenerative. Power with, power to, power from within. That's Brene Brown too. So Brene Brown's been speaking this game for a big time, a long time now too, right? Power with versus power over is where this is all shifting. And power with is about innate capacity. It means that actually I trust that I am an essential point, part of this organism, this living system, just like everyone is. And so all of our program development comes from that space of, no, yes, you can. You wouldn't be here if you couldn't. We're gonna stop telling ourselves stories. Well, I could, but that hurt our own feelings and keep us from what? Doing what we're gonna want to do anyways, our calling, what we can't even avoid. So it's this realignment of understanding that regenerative power with structures cannot collapse because they're not based on any type of ladder and they're not based on any type of scaffolding to keep that bullshit standing. You know, it's nope, we put the money back to the midwives. We say, thanks for doing what you're doing anyways. You want some more students? Cause that's what you need. And we say, yeah, sure. Go get a meek degree. We need more midwives, but no matter what, I can definitely start turning out two to three students per midwife right now. Boom, 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 boom. Because the more people we catch as birth assistants saying, hey, you can do this, the more student midwifery matriculation we actually end up having. Because we give them an access point and we give them the infrastructure and the economics and the money to make it a good decision so they can make money while they go forward. Right? Without answering the infrastructure concerns of the populace, of the women that will be serving, that can't even afford their own homes right now as midwives, you have to address that if you want to see this come forward. The NHS has just shown that they had right here in England, right now they have more students matriculating into midwifery this year than they've had ever. Oh yeah, they offered big grants. They offered big grants. And you know what else happens in these other countries too, like New Zealand? When you take out a loan for your midwifery school, it comes with a weekly stipend for the entire program so that half of your school funding is your living expense because they know how busy you are and they turn you from a, you know, and it's just this, it's like, these are all options available to us. So believe me, you're going to see me, you're going to see Augustine, you're going to see a lot of us. They're going to say, okay, well, you do what you want. You do what you want. Like, we love you guys. We love OBs. We love all of it. And we're also going to do some stuff about it.
because it's we are the change we want to see right if we want more people being able to access midwifery and more people being able to access birth then we need to figure out how to help get that done and a lot of it is nurturing the soils of knowing you can and finding the access and the opportunities to be able to do it so that if you feel called to birth you take that first step instead of it feeling like it's a mountain that sits right mm -hmm. up here always out of reach of well i mean that was a great idea one life maybe next life we can, we have no time for that we have no time for creating a hurdle to become a midwife right now i need new midwives every three years boom 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 on the streets in every city right now so does everybody giving birth whether or not you're going to birth at home because if you get a low risk person taking up your ob's time right why they need why you need to be in that or do you think you're going to feel good about that mm -mm. It, it's, it's regenerative understand that's the thing i'm just coming from a living system living systems approach none of us are actually separate None of us are separate. And midwifery care and maternity care specifically sit right there in that knowing. And it's hilarious that we keep trying to put it under the paradigm of this top down yeah. thing. That's why midwifery doesn't work. It will not work in America that way. And that's what we're seeing. Yep. So, yeah. I, get I love that. About oh, it. I love it. I love that perspective. Uh, all of it. I, I'm going to re-listen to my own podcast because I want to I want to re-listen to everything you just said again. I can talk for hours. Anytime. I love it. I have semantic questions for the birth assistance because, yeah. mm -hmm. you know, all these thoughts are going through my head. But like when I think about applying it, OK, I want to be a birth assistant. OK, great. I can be on call, but I have to be home by 7 a.m. to take my child to school. Mm hmm. Can I do that as a birth assistant? As a midwife, you can't, but do I get relief? Like, what is the expectation of a birth assistant? That's a great question. And honestly, a lot of our birth assistants, really, that's a personal thing they end up chatting with, with the midwives specifically they work mm -hmm. with. When I'm running my larger call schedules here, then it's, it's rotational, right? We encourage every student to stay at the birth they start at. Just stay. Right. right. And for the most part, it does work right. For the most part, it typically works out if we have a situation. Um, and that's why I'm, I can't speak to anyone else. I can't speak to the midwife in Mississippi. Oh, but I thought I could go home. The lady on the podcast said, right. That's not how that works. You have to talk to the midwives you work with, um, getting your own backup, right. Being the only birth assistant to a midwife. Shit. You're kind of like a student midwife. If you have two birth assistants, you and somebody else, then that's something you're always discussing with the other birth assistant as well. Mm -hmm. But the overall goal, honestly, is that in the end, let's say you're on call for these five days or whatever. The overall goal is if you're on call, you're on call. And if you're going to be on a 24-hour call, you've identified that with the midwife, right? To where it's a, like you're off when the next person rotates on, right? Or if you're going to be per birth. And I think the thing for most people is, you're not going to get away from, we're going to try to make this as easy as possible for you on the birth world, but let's be really honest. Like you're not going to get away from what birth is, the hours of it, right? right. The, the, well, I thought I was going to be here for two hours. Well, don't ever think that because now yeah. you're here for 20, right? So that's, you know, um, and it was so interesting because when we had our first group of students, right? And our students when they rotate through, we have very distinct like requirements. And one of them is, if you're an assistant student in our rotation, you can miss one phone call. If you miss a second phone call ever, 
because I have midwives working with me across this board. So I, my reputation sits with them. You're off the schedule, period. And that did happen actually to one of our students. Mm -hmm. you know? And it's one of the, I can't, I can make this as easy. I can lead you. I can give you every iota of routine and complication and etiology. And so you can feel really good and I can get you all here, but I can't make birth work, not birth work. I can't tell you what it's going to look like. And I think what's intriguing about birth work in general is everybody wants to be told what to do. And I'm like, yeah, but see, that's how we got here. Like, that's literally how we got here. That's like why we're here. So I'm going to need everybody to start paying attention to what they want and making yeah. it worth it for them and organize their life around it. According to that metric, I can't do it for you. <laughs> right. Yeah. And it what is, is a good question? And I know this will vary probably for every place location, but okay. So like a doula, generally you kind of expect that they're there from early labor on when the person calls them and needs them, your midwife, and this is general speculation mm -hmm. kind of shows up when you're getting into that active stage of labor, okay. when is your birth assistant show up? I love this because so many midwives use birth assistants differently. When we set this up right. with midwives here, right? Um, and this, I'll talk about it with pay as well, because this mm -hmm. is a good talk about pay as well and how people use birth assistants, right? So I did it. I got all this together. I got all my stuff. I completed my pro BA program. I'm awesome. I'm ready to be a birth assistant. How do I even negotiate, right? We go over a lot of how to get paid stuff in the program because it isn't just about skills. Like how do you get out there and get paid? Um, but the, the, some people use birth assistants. So there's a midwife here in um, the Valley area and she only calls birth assistants legit right before a client's pushing. Like in her birth assistants know to like, you know, Hey, right. we have a mom coming in. Like, so when I call you come and they come in and they're there just for the, just for the birth and some cleaning and no more than typically like two to four hours. Right. And she pays them, I think one fifty. Mm -hmm a birth, right? But that's what she expects. She expects that. Um, Jen Hoadley, because she's had students forever. And so she's just like, I don't want to work. I need a student and a student. I need everyone doing this shit for me in a great way. I don't mean that. Like a negative way, but yes. That, when you get used to having really good students as a midwife, you can relax at a birth mm -hmm. because you've got all the support you need. You're so good to go versus being on your own, which is terrifying sometimes, right? You don't want to do yeah. that all the time as a midwife. So she'll call her mid, she'll call the moment she's going to a birth, so's her birth assistant, right? No, yep, we're going, if I'm going, and I'll say this, if she's established that, yeah, they're in active labor. And yeah, not okay. Just, yeah, once they're in active labor, then yeah, but we don't, yeah, we don't have birth assistants attend early labor. Doulas can call, doulas get called the first contraction sometimes. Yes. Right, and that's that doula job. Like, right. That's not the midwife job. Thank, I don't do that. Yeah. Um, I do six centimeters plus. <laughs> yeah, you're not alone. Yeah, no, because that's smart for all of us. That protects right. the best outcomes for moms. It does. Because watch pots don't bo don't uh, boil. So yes, and sustainability of midwifery. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um. So yeah. So it really depends. But she'll call her birth assistants and she pays them four hundred. So one fifty to four hundred from four hours of work. Right. She's like, some people make two hundred bucks an hour. We end up showing up and a baby falls out and we clean and go home and they're making almost two hundred bucks an hour. Right. Mm -hmm. But sometimes. You're making 30 bucks an hour, which is still not bad. And I think that's something we have to consider too in the, what does it mean to be able to make money in an on-call fashion that you can make, right? That is going to be, that will, I get called, I get paid this. That's awesome. 
versus how do you balance having a life and part-time work that may require all this other, you know, it's always choices, right? Always, always choices. It's easier to be a birth assistant though, than it is to be a midwife full-time. Mm -hmm. I will say that because there's part of me that's like, well, I could, I, I gotta be honest. I, I would not have been a good nurse. I don't think, um, at all. And the big reason being that I have to, I'm not used to taking orders from anyone else, right? I'm used to being more in charge. And so I'm, that's why I like being a primary care provider. Like I want to be able to be the one that's like, nope, this is for sure. Like I'll take the responsibility. But for a lot of people, they actually don't. They just want birth. They just want to go to birth. They just want to help with birth. They want to ooh, right. give the baby some air. Oh, the baby's crying. They want the high. They want the, and that's to me, I don't, that's fine. That's fine. I need you. I need all the people who just want to sign up three to five days a month who want that high, but who show up for it and are skilled when they do. That's yeah. all that matters to me. Right. Cause not everybody needs to be a primary care provider. I think that's another thing we've lost a lot in the healthcare world with this concept of midwifery. It's like, well, where is the support staff? Where are the midwifery billers, the admins, the, the, nursing assistants, the birth assistants, the clinic assistants, all of this stuff, right? It's not just about, oh, we need more midwives. You know, I really could have used somebody to do all the 70% of my time of business stuff these last three years. It helped me learn a lot, but did it strengthen my midwifery? Yes and no, but you know what I mean? There's these yeah. concepts of like, yeah, cool. I took my exam. I've got my license. I'm a midwife. Now what? I will say though, you probably would have made an excellent LD nurse because for anybody listening, LD nurses are their own special group. And sometimes it feels like you either are one or you're not. And I think you would have been a really good LD nurse. You probably wouldn't have stayed long because you would have been like, no, I need to catch these babies. <laughs> but right. in your time there, you would have been great. Um, oh. No, but I think this course is like, so great because I often hear people say, well, be a doula first. If you're, uh, you know, if you're kind of like, should I be a midwife, blah, blah, blah. This is a great, great alternative that sounds like something you can do quicker and maybe more sustainable in your life, especially if you're somebody like I told you offline, I have people that maybe have young children and they can't do midwifery yet. This is something they could fit into their life. I think it's great. Thank you. Yeah, we love yeah. it too. You know, we got a lot of fun stuff. Check it. So Pacific Birth Institute, um, you can check us on all the social stuff. We just got on Twitter. We're getting on TikTok, <gasps> which will be super fun because Jen and I make ridiculous videos together just for fun. So. Sure, they're fun. I'm not on TikTok, but you make me want to go on there just to watch yours. <laughs> well, I'm excited to see what comes up because I, this is, yeah, it's the whole world of the online. I'm really excited. I got to do this chat with you today and Me with too. your audience. Ooh, I wanted to give you guys an offer too. So your audience, totally, we have a code specific for you. It's 10% oh, off. The yeah. code is journey. Okay. So just the code journey. So okay. if you go to pacificbirthinstitute.com and you see, we have course intensives and we have the professional birth assistant program that. 10% off applies to the one-time payment for the ProBA program and all of our course intensives specific nice. for your listeners. Thank yeah. you. I'll put that in the show notes too and on the, like an Instagram post, but so, that's so awesome. Thank you. Yeah. Thank you. I love it. It's been mm, a blast I, talking to you. 
I had a blast talking to you. Thank you so much, Amber. And depending on feedback, I'd you know, if people have more questions, let me know. We yeah. can reach out, tag me in a post or anything, okay. or I'll come back and chat anytime if people have questions. I know we try to cover so much. It's it's like yeah. we could do hours on personal, hours on political, hours on all of it. For <laughs> sure. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. All right. I'll put all your um social medias too in the in the show notes, but you said just Pacific Birth Institute, so it's probably easy to find. It is, yep. All right, oh, Jessica, thank, thank you. you. Take care, Amber. Have a great day. Well, I hope you all enjoyed another fantastic interview on the Journey to Midwifery podcast. I should have all of Jessica's links in the show notes and remember to check out her social media pages. If you are at all interested in becoming a birth worker and aren't ready to step into the world of midwifery or you're not sure, the Pacific Birth Institute sounds like a great stepping stone. So I hope that you all will check that out and found that this episode was helpful. Remember, you can find me at journey to midwifery podcast at gmail.com on Facebook and Instagram at journey to midwifery podcast. Keep sending me your suggestions. Like I say, I do reach out to all the people that you send me to have on the podcast. Um, some respond and some do not, but I do have interviews scheduled through January. So those references are working. So keep sending them my way. 